Let me go ahead and just, uh, I'm going to go and read our passage this morning for us. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. Giddy. One dictionary defines giddy as being joyfully elated. And this term is probably the best description for young new lovers, right? Um, I'm grateful for having such a wonderful circle of friends. I'm, they're, they're amazing. And um, they, they've just put up with me with so much. Uh, before I met my wife, I had all the time in the world to hang out with them. We'd have wonderful discussions. You can ask Kendall, John Trammell. Um, and we, we would just talk about so much. But when I started dating my lovely wife, uh, the nature of our conversations began to change it seemed like all I ever wanted to talk about was this Josie person who lived on the other side of the world. At the time, she was serving in China. And um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I got a little annoying with my friends. Uh, when I would spontaneously start, like we, we'd be anywhere. We'd be at the park. We'd be at, the, at, uh, at a house party. And spontaneously, out of nowhere, I would pop out my phone, start recording, and make a public announcement. Hey, everybody, say hello to Josie. And so one by one, I would, I would take my phone and have them say hello to, to, um, to Josie. And so bless their heart, they never told me that I was annoying. They just, they really did put up with me. I'm pretty sure that I was quite the annoyance um, during that season. Um, Also, uh, before the conversations, uh, before I started dating my wife, the the conversations revolved around uh, theological discussions, checking in in on each other. And we still did that for sure, but um, it, it changed. There was that plus, Josie is so awesome. You know, guys, she's just the kind of person I've been praying for. She's, she loves the Lord. She's Christ-centered. Her theology is right. What more can you ask for? And um, am I alone? I don't know if anybody of you have, can relate or have gone through the giddy syndrome. Uh, but there are, they have another term for it. It's called sprung, right? <laughs> and and from, from my From my cultural observations, that seems to be the norm across the board. Whether it's a person, your favorite dish, favorite movie, favorite songs, favorite sports team, when it comes to that thing you love, you just can't help but talk about it and praise it. Uh, Can you imagine tomorrow in game five when the Warriors win, right? (laughs) I, I, did you guys get that? I made an absolute statement. I was kind of, I don't know if that's prophecy or whatnot, <laughs> but, 
Yeah, tomorrow, can you imagine when they win game five, that in Oracle Arena, it's just silent after that last buzzard, right? That would just be super awkward um, if, if nobody applauded, nobody screamed, and nobody celebrated. And, um, but why is it? Why is it that people don't remain silent about the thing that they love? I think that C.S. Lewis captures it and hit the nail on the head when he said that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So if, there is no, if, if there's no celebrating of that which you love, person or thing, uh, then you're not, it's, there's no, you're not really, it's evidence that you actually don't really love that thing or person. That without celebration, without praise, there is no uh, true evidence of that love that you have for that thing. And so this is no different when it comes to praising the Lord, praising Yahweh. Our love for God must terminate in praise. If it doesn't, then we're not fully worshiping the Lord. The scriptures are replete with the command to praise the Lord. And my notes were backwards. Um, if, it, if, it, um, if it doesn't, then we're not fully worshiping the Lord. The scriptures are replete with those commands. Hence, the title of my sermon this morning, Praise is Not Optional. Um, earlier uh, during worship, uh, they, they had several verses with commands to praise, a call to praise throughout the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 66, shout for joy to God. All the earth, sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Psalm 104, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Jeremiah 20, 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the soul for the needy one from the hand of evildoers. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You see, there's no denying the testimony of what Scripture says, that praise isn't optional. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, uh, you must praise him. It doesn't matter if you're like me and you don't have uh, an amazing vocal um, and uh, worthy enough to come and, and sing with uh, and, and worship with Dave and the crew on the worship team, the fact of the matter is that you must praise. Just like baptism is an outward evidence or outward sign of an inward reality, so too is praise an outward sign of an inward reality that you really love God. Our passage this morning, Psalm 113, shows this to be the case. However, it's important for us um, at this point to ask why praise isn't optional. The structure of the psalm, Psalm 113, um, can easily be de detected. Verses 1 through 3, you, uh, it opens with a call to praise. And verses 4 through 9 gives us the cause to praise or the reason for praise. You'll notice immediately the three times repeated command, praise the Lord. 
Verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. This gives you a clue that this is a psalm of praise. It's not a lament. He's commanding us to praise the Lord. And the psalmist repeating the call to praise three times is emphasizing the importance of praise. The fact that he's commanding God's people to praise is actually, I lost my spot. There we go. Um, and so he's not, he's not giving a suggestion here, right? He didn't say, praise Yahweh if you feel like it or praise Yahweh if you've got excellent vocals. No, there, there's no discrimination with this command. You, you must praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord is simply where we get um, uh, hallelujah. Um, it, the word praise the Lord is derived from the Hebrew. Some of you may already know this, but if you don't, I think it, it's kind of cool to, to give you guys a lexical explanation of, uh, of that term. So uh, praise of the Lord is, like I said, is just where we get the term hallelujah from. The Hebrew command for praise is halu. And, um, and the word yah at the end of hallelujah is just shorthand for Yahweh. So put those two words together, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hence why we have hallelujah. So if you've always sang those, that word hallelujah and never really knew, knew what it meant, um, now you know. And um, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm singing songs in, in, uh, in the, with the congregation and um, there, there's a word that might pop up and uh, I'm, I'm like, I don't know what that word means, but I'm in a Christian church. I'm with my brothers and sisters. I'm pretty sure it's appropriate. So I'll just sing it, right? And not even know what it means. Uh, so um, I hope that you've, if you didn't know what that meant, that now you do. And so you can sing hallelujah, knowing what it, what it actually means. Like, I, for example, like the first time I sang that song, Hosanna. See, you see, I told you I don't have vocals. But that song, Hosanna, right? I'd sing it, but I'm like, I don't even know what that means, right? Um, I know that they mention it in the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? But like, what does that word even mean? So not only is the command to praise repeated three times, but the Lord's covenant name is repeated three times in the opening verse. He is the object of our praise, we're not worshiping an idol. We're not worshiping money. We're not worshiping careers or any created thing. We're called to worship the God of the Bible. We'll turn to these verses a little later because although I did say that praise is um, not optional, praise is not the most important thing. The heart of praise is what's ultimate. We, we don't praise the Lord for nothing. Praise is an activity that is a response to revelation, namely revelation to the person of Yahweh. I've heard it said that theology should always lead to doxology. And I absolutely agree. I, I agree with that statement, especially with the, the ordering of that statement. Doxology, praising the Lord, never precedes theology. Our praise and worship of God is always a response to revelation. The problem in attempting to worship the God of the Bible uh, without revelation is, will lead to idolatry. The, the consequences are deadly 
if we try or attempt to worship the Lord without true knowledge of who he is. I don't know if you guys remember in the Old Testament when Nadab and Abihu offered up strange fire on the altar of the Lord. Those were Aaron's two sons and the Lord wiped them out. So if we attempt to worship the Lord with our own imagination and our own ingenuity, the consequences can be deadly. Like, can you imagine, like, just in this in, in the, the general congregational meeting, somebody just gets struck down by the Lord because they offered up worship that wasn't pleasing to the Lord? I don't know about you, that, that would freak me out. I'm like, whoa, what just happened? The fear of the Lord would come upon me at that point. But it's important that we worship the Lord aright. And so we can say that we're worshiping the Lord, but if, if we don't have any biblical grounds for the way that we worship the Lord, you can be sure that the Lord's not pleased with it. You can say it all you want, but apart from true knowledge of who God is, we don't worship the Lord aright. So according to the psalmist, we worship the Lord, all right? Um, and our passage this morning gives us three specific reasons why we're to worship the Lord. First, he is exalted in his positions. So these are my main points now. The, the, the idea of praising the Lord is really not the, like I said, not the main thing, the most important thing. That's really the application of this passage. The heart of this passage is found in verses four through nine. And that's where we'll find our main points. So the reasons, the specific reasons why we worship the Lord is first, uh, we worship him in his exalted position, verse four. Second, we worship the Lord for his condescending nature, verses five and six. And third, we worship the Lord for his um, gracious acts, verses seven through nine. First, we worship the Lord in his exalted position, Verse four, the Lord is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. The idea of God's exalted position over the nations refers to his sovereign rule and power over all creation. Just think about this for a second. Over all nations, the individuals and the collective peoples of nations, God reigns over He's supreme over all nations and all peoples. He's far greater than any individual and any collective peoples of the world. I was watching a video of Usain Bolt the other day when he broke the record, right? Um, uh, in the 100-meter dash. I was going to say 100-mile dash, but 100-meter dash. And I think his fastest uh, time, correct me afterwards uh, if I'm wrong, is, is 9.69 seconds. Everyone went bananas when, when he broke the record, right? He was, he was praised worldwide for his amazing accomplishment. But whoop-de-doo, right? The Lord broke that record long before he ever broke it. When that gunshot went on to, to start the race, the Lord was already at the finish line. Steph Curry's a pretty amazing dude, man. He's, what, the best shooter in the NBA? And we've got to admit that he's, he's, he's pretty dope. He's pretty dope. The guys, uh, he, he makes, making crazy shots all over the court. Xiaowei never misses. <laughs> and, and they'd all be swishes, right? How about that? And, and, and he, doesn't, he didn't even have to lift a finger. Can you imagine Yahweh on the blacktop? He, and, and this is just my imagination here, but uh, Yahweh on the blacktop speaking to the ball, hey, Spalding, go into the hoop. And there goes Spalding, swish, 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 swish. Token and C.S. Lewis, 
There's some amazing storytellers, right? No doubt about it. And they can inspire us. Indeed, they can. I love those stories. But their stories don't have the power to bring dead men to life like this story, right? This story has the power to turn dead men into living creatures, Michelangelo, Picasso, and Rembrandt created some miraculous, miraculous pieces, and yet they too were created by the uncreated one. Compared to the Lord, the world's greatest talent are like kindergartners trying, to, trying out for the, for the talent show. That's just on the individual level. But how about on a national level? Rome, with all of her glory, conquered the known world in her day. But where is she now? Where is that empire? Where is that kingdom today? Where is the, the empire and all of her legions whom the nations bowed before and submitted to? Where is she today? Where are the Caesars? Where are the Napoleons? Where are the Alexanders, uh, Alexander the Great? Where are these former great men of these great empires today? They're beneath the dust. And yet this one, this king that we worship, he reigns. He reigns. What about us? What about us? America. America, right? With, with, with all of our technological advances and our military might, the Navy SEALs, Ranger and all, if God willed our downfall, if he did, we may think it impossible, but he could send Costa Rica to wipe us out. And the reason why I picked Costa Rica is that they, uh, to my understanding, they don't have a standing army, a military, right? Um, you can, don't go on your phones and Google that now. Do it after the sermon. And if I'm wrong, you can correct me after the sermon. <laughs> so the psalmist's point is, that God is above all peoples and above all nations, but he doesn't stop there. He's just meditating on the greatness and the transcendence of Yahweh. But then he goes on and he says that uh, he's above the nations. Um, Just when we thought that he was great over the nations, he's greater than the heavens as well. Our galaxy, the the Milky Way, is just one of 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. And that should give you an idea of how massive our universe is. But as massive as it is in size, God's massiver. I don't even know if that's a word, but he is. And I know that's not, I'm pretty sure it's not a word. But I think there's an unwritten law for pastors and preachers that you can make up words. I've heard it done several times. I've heard Dan do it. I've heard, I've heard several pastors do it. And so I don't know if Dave Torres is in here, but that should, hopefully that gives you an incentive to want to preach here someday. Um, what, what about the stars, right? There's an estimated one with 24 zeros behind it. And I don't even know what that number is called, but I think that we can all agree that it's a whole heck of a lot of stars And our brains can't even really comprehend that number, right? Um, All that power, all that power. And who do you think keeps the lights on in the universe? Yosemite National Park. Who do you think designed the landscape? The Grand Canyon. Who do you think carved it? As we think upon the greatness of the Lord, we worship him because of his exalted position. 
In the first part of the psalmist's meditation in Psalm 113, his meditation about the Lord, he deals with his transcendence, right? He is high above anything or anyone. He's a cut above. You can't compare him. But he doesn't, he, it's, it's just, he doesn't stop there. In his deep thoughts about Yahweh, he goes on uh, and, and places the spotlight on another aspect of Yahweh's or the Lord's character by way of a rhetorical question. He asks, he asks, who is like the Lord, our God? Scour the heavens, search out the earth, and you'll, find, uh, you, you, you'll, you'll not find a God like this one. But why? But why will we not find a God like the God of the Bible? Well, the psalmist answers that for us. In the second part of his question, he says, Who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? This verse echoes um, the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, where he says, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Which leads us to our second reason why we worship the Lord. We worship Yahweh, for, uh, for his condescending nature. Well, the psalmist is just blown away because as he contemplates the person and the character of God, he sees something infinitely glorious and worthy of praise. But although the Lord is transcendent and, and he rules over the heavens and the earth, seated on his throne, yet he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He isn't like the God of the deists. I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with uh, deism, but this is a, a, an ideology where they say that God created the universe and stepped back and allowed the chips to fall where they may. So he doesn't intervene. He doesn't interact with creation. But the God of the Bible is not like that. In contrast to the God of the Bible, um, who doesn't intervene in our broken world, Yahweh, although he is lofty and high above the heavens and high above the earth, takes interest in the affairs of his creation. He sees the broken state of our world and he looks down and he sees it and he, he considers it. And the psalmist paints a vivid picture for us here. He said, for us, when, when he says, the Lord is seated on high in glory, so high that he looks down or stoops far down, not just on the earth, but on the heavens. This is the reason. This is the reason why the psalmist uh, ex uh, explodes in worship. Yahweh is not just some... Um, some foreign distant God, but he is very near to his people. So that idea that, that, that God is in his glory in the heavens, it's, um, the, the psalmist is using just some wonderful techniques here, just uh, painting a picture for us. Imagine God for a second sitting on his throne in glory, looking down on the earth and on the heavens, and he has to, it's so small, it's so tiny in comparison to how massive and how big God is, that he has to stoop low just to, just to see it. And that's how small we are compared to this infinite and glorious God of the Bible. 
And the fact that Yahweh condescends is the very reason that he's so worthy to be praised. His condescending doesn't diminish his glory, but actually heightens his glory. This is the very nature of Yahweh. This is the very nature of the God of the Bible. And he displays this throughout Scripture. This is how he reveals himself in in Exodus chapter 2 to Moses, right before he sends him off to um, and enlist Moses to, to take his people out of Egypt. Uh, this is um, Moses writes in, in chapter 2 about Israel's groaning because of their slavery. And, and, and they cried out for help. And we're told that their cry for rescue came up to God, right? And that God heard their groaning. God then calls Moses and through Moses delivers his people. And then in chapter 3 of Exodus verse 8, Yahweh says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And sure enough, he did. What about when God's people were captives in Babylon for their idolatry? God was still faithful to bring them back to the promised land from their captivities. Remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What God in all of history acts in such a way? There is no God. The Old Testament saints had a glimpse of God's glory. But we have a greater glimpse of that glory. We have a more glorious glimpse of that glory. God is no longer moving through human agents the way that he did, in a way he is, but personal, but he, in the New Testament, personally comes down into the muck and mire of our broken world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, meaning that he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped with, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So to piggyback on Dan's message last week regarding what it means to be a spirit-filled church, this is a key component to being a spirit-filled church. It's central that we make much of Christ. The, spirit, the Spirit's ministry is to take the floodlights and point it on Christ. One of the Spirit's responsibilities and his duties is to put all the attention on the Son. It's all about him, not on himself, not on the gifts, not on the ministries that he's given us, but on the person of Jesus. John 16, 12 through 15, this is what Jesus says. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Not me, but Jesus. Uh, For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You want to know if Parkway is about the business of the Father? Is Christ being exalted here? Is it about the programs that we have? Is it about the ministries that we have? Is it about the growth that we have? I think it's safe to say that without all those things, without even, without growth, if all we're doing is making much of Christ, then we are honoring the Father. We leave the results to Him. The second that we stop proclaiming Christ, making our lives, making our community about Christ, then we have failed. And this is exactly, um, and so the, the Spirit doesn't, and in doing so, and, and the Spirit's uh, making much of Christ, it doesn't mean that he's any less God because his ministry is to magnify Christ. The reason why he does this is that in seeing Jesus, we see the Father. And in seeing the Father, we see what God is like or who God is like. John 14, 9 says this, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever, see, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. Read the Gospels and you will see his character. You will see who God is like, how he deals with broken people, how he deals with sinners, how kind he is, how gracious he is, how merciful he is, how long-suffering he is. And this is why our mission statement here is at, Park, at Parkway is to live and love and declare the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things to all peoples. We didn't just come up with that phrase because it's a catchy phrase. It's because that's what the heart of Christianity is. The heart of Christianity is making much of Jesus. We're to make much of him. Lastly, we worship the Lord for his gracious actions. The last two, the last two verses give two concrete examples of how the transcendent Yahweh condescends himself. First, he, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes of his people. Second, he gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children. The first example in verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. This is another vivid illustration that the psalmist paints for us. This time it's about the, the poor and pitiful condition of those whom he left his throne to be near to. The poor... Is, is a description of those who can't help themselves and, and must depend on the kindness and the grace of others in order to make it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to see the homeless in, in Fairfield. They're, they're all over the place. And, um, and they're, they're either panhandling, you see them panhandling, or, or pushing their carts around. And um, I, it's a sad sight. You know, you weep for them. Uh, and the condition that they're in, whatever led up, whatever circumstances led up to that decision, you, you see them and you, you, your heart weeps and aches for their condition. However, it's, it's, it is sad indeed, but that's exactly how the Lord sees us. 
He, we may not view ourselves as such, but that's because we've got plenty of this world to cover up our spiritual bankruptcy. A great career, nice cars, and the list goes on to make it appear as if we're not poor. But in reality, underneath the veneer, the Lord sees us as we truly are, broke and unable to help or save ourselves. Next, he says that the Lord lifts the needy from the ash heap. The Hebrew term or the Hebrew word for ash heap here refers to dung pile. That's where the Lord finds us. That's where the Lord comes to us. We are in the dung pile. We can, we can wash our clothes with tide, shower with dove. However, the Lord smells the stench of our sinful hearts. He sees it. He smells it. And nothing can cleanse, cleanse us and our filthiness except for the righteousness of Jesus. But the beauty of Yahweh is that despite our condition, he doesn't leave us there. He sees and knows us for what we really are, for, for who we really are. And not only that, he, he cleanses us, but, but he also raises us up in a place of honor. Verse 8, he says this, He makes them sit with, princes, with, princes, with the princes of his people. Who does that? Who does that? You can probably imagine Let's just use this for an illustration. You can use this to, to compare, right? The greatness of Yahweh. Can you imagine? You could probably do this. Um, the Queen of England um, going to a, uh, a fundraiser for the homeless. Uh, but can you imagine the Queen of England actually going into the slums of England, rallying all the homeless people and cleaning them up and saying, and, and making them a part of the royal household. Not happening. I guarantee you that is not going to happen. But that's exactly what God does for you. That's, a God, that's exactly what God has done for you and has done for me. You may not see the ramifications of it or experience the reality of that now because sin blocks that for us. Or, or, or blinds us from seeing that. But Romans chapter 8, 17 says that we are heirs with Christ. We are heirs with Christ. Saints, just, just think about that. You, you may not have the riches of this world and never will, but you are an heir to the kingdom of God. The riches of this world isn't going to last Therefore, you don't, you don't have to be worried or you don't have to be jealous of the things that people have and you don't. You don't have to covet the houses that you watch on those reality TV shows because you've got something coming that doesn't compare and will never compare and will never break down. The second example of Yahweh's condescension, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. This is most likely referring to uh, the song of Hannah um, or referring to the person of Hannah because the previous verses that we just looked at were a direct quotation from First uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. Hannah was a barren woman. 
And, and in those days, the barren woman was treated like an outcast or a second-class citizen because she couldn't bear any children. She couldn't produce an heir to carry the family line forward. She was a major disappointment to her husband. But though they may be mistreated by their own friends or their own families or their own culture, society, God takes delight in meeting them where they are at and bringing them joy. You see, you and I were once spiritual outcasts, but Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, with all of our accomplishments and worldly attainments, without Christ, we remain outcast. We remain bankrupt. We're not for this transcendent God who enters into our mess. We'd still be lost, hopeless, and without peace. However, however, we aren't without hope. We who have been united with Jesus have been brought near to the Father. His blood has cleansed us, nailing our sins to the cross. And because he has risen, we too will rise. Therefore, because of Yahweh's transcendence, his condescension, and his gracious acts on our behalf, we can sing with the saints, with the choir in heaven, and sing with them, hallelujah, with the psalmist singing, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Praise is not optional for you, even if you can't sing like me. You have a glorious reason to praise the Lord. Therefore, praise him. When we sing, when we're, we're about to sing right now, when you sing these words, meditate upon the words, meditate upon the words of the psalmist in 113, and sing your hearts out. Don't just sing with your lips, sing with your heart, because this glorious and transcendent God has left his throne. This glorious and transcendent God who is high above the heavens, high above the earth, has come down to your mess and has made you his own. He takes interest in you. He considers you. He knows your pain. He knows the the hidden struggles that you don't share with anybody else. And he considers you because you are his. You're united to his son, and he'll never let you go. So praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. He's so worthy to be praised. Don't worry about the person sitting next to you when we're singing songs in church. Worry about that ultimate audience of Yahweh whom you are singing his glory to. Rejoice and and be glad that you have the gift and the privilege to sing praises to Yahweh. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are so glorious, so transcendent and high above the heavens, high above the earth, and yet you consider us, Lord. Who are we that you are mindful of us, O God? Lord, we, you deserve all the praise. 
You deserve all the glory. And so I pray that as we close in singing, that we would do so with hearts that have been rejoicing over who you are and have seen your greatness. Lord, we praise you and pray these things in your son's majestic name. Amen.